Good morning, and welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to be here with you and to worship the living God today. We're going to uh, highlight a few announcements. You can read the announcements on, your back, on the back of the bulletin. Um, the first one that we need to really highlight is that our uh, high school RYM group's leaving tomorrow morning, so they need to be here ready to go at 9 o'clock. What that really means is you probably need to be here at 8.45 or 8.50, and they're going to meet in the parking lot over here. Meet in the parking lot over here. We've got vehicles, caravanning. It's a great time. So uh, parents, if your kids aren't listening, you need to make sure that you can help them get here at 8.50 in the morning. Our Summer Bible Club is not meeting this week. I believe it will meet again next week on the 20th. You can note there are a couple of opportunities for women in our church for fellowship with our presbytery. Presbytery is a a regional gathering of churches, and so if that is something that you would like to participate in, uh, you can find the details there. Also, our Joy Group is planning a couple more events. The next one is, I think, August 4th, and so uh, you can catch the details here in the bulletin as well. The, the last thing I need to announce is uh, this selection of keys was uh, in the church during vacation Bible school, and uh, it's still there. So if, if this is your set of keys, how are you getting into anything? <laughs> um, I'm just curious. But also, we would like for you to have this back. Uh, if this is just like a, a rattle and you're glad it's gone, you know, we'll, be, we'll dispose of it for you. But if you would like these back, just let us know. We're gonna, I'm going to have them here to, this morning. They'll be over in the office this week. So if, if this is yours or you know whose this is, uh, they just have to tell us how many keys are on it, and we'll give it back to them. Um, the, the Lord is with us. The Scriptures tell us that He inhabits the praises of His people. And so we want to recognize the great moment that this is, to gather in the presence of God, to receive his blessings, to remember his favor, to bring ourselves with all of our needs and weaknesses and gifts and graces, all that God has given to us and called us to, we bring to him this morning and offer to him ourselves as he gives himself to us. Would you take a moment to gather your mind and your heart so that you might worship well and in truth, the living God.
Uh, some of you coming to worship this morning, your thoughts are all over the place. Maybe you're tired. Um, maybe you're no, neither of those things. However we come to worship, we give praise to God because He gives us the words to say and to believe. He helps us come into worship to actually worship Him. He gives us His Spirit to empower us to do these things. So would you please stand for our call to worship from Psalm 111. And no matter what we're thinking or feeling in this very moment, God graciously gives us his words. And by faith, he makes these words our words. So hear God's call to worship from Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Would you join me in singing and worshiping our gracious and merciful God with hymn number 38, Immortal Invisible God only wise. Let's worship together. Immortal, invisible God, you are the most wise God. We come this morning to worship you as transcendent God, but also God who is Emmanuel, God with us. You sent your son Jesus to live and die for us, who rose from the grave and sent the Holy Spirit to us to be with us, to be our helper, to be our friend, to be our encourager. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be with us this morning in this worship service, that you would open our hearts to receive your word as we hear it preached, as we read it, as we sing the truths that are contained in your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do all things for the glory of God through us this morning and that you would bless us in this worship service. Would you lead us now in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In your bulletin, if you would take that, we will continue on in our confession of faith through the Heidelberg Catechism. Before I read the question, I'd like to read from Exodus chapter 20, where we find the Ten Commandments. And I'll read the third commandment for us and then ask the question for you to respond with the bold print. The third commandment is this, Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Believer, what is required in the third commandment? We are not to blaspheme or to abuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor to share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. Rather, we must use the holy name of God only with fear and reverence, so that we may rightly confess Him, call upon Him, and praise Him in all our words and works. You may be seated. We're not to take the Lord's name in vain, to bring it dishonor. The, the number one way that we will be tempted to bring dishonor to the name is to uh, do so because we are called by His name. We are His people, Christians, who are in Christ, and so it is with our lives, not even really the, the words, but our lives that become the thing that most violate the third commandment. And so we come to this commandment recognizing once again that the first thing this commandment reveals to us is that we have a need for a Savior who can rescue us in order to make us able to even start to obey. The second thing it talks about is that we wouldn't want to be silent bystanders. How can we most avoid being silent bystanders? Well, it is to give praise to God, praising His name, calling upon Him, Praising Him for all uh, His works. That is the way to do so. And one aspect that's uh, appropriate as we go to a time of prayer is to recognize that His grace is praiseworthy. And as we confess our sins and experience His forgiveness, we are actually praising His name. Uh, The writer of Ephesians tells us, that it is to the praise of His glorious grace that God brings His salvation to us. So, during this moment of our worship, we'll start the prayer with silent and individual prayer. And this is where you can go to God with your own sins to confess them, but not just to say the sins, not just to make a list, but to entrust them to God and to really believe that He forgives those sins to the praise of His glorious grace, that is honoring His name. Would you take just a moment in silent and individual prayer to call on His name as rightly honors Him? And after just a moment of individual prayer, I'll lead us in corporate prayer. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, under the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ, we call you Father. That is the Christian name for the one true and living God. To believe that you have adopted us as your sons and daughters, to believe that we are united to Christ, that we are marked as your family members, we bear your name 
the same way we bear the last name that says we're part of a family. You have named us. And because of that, we would, we would like to do honor to your name. And we are finding ourselves unable to do your name justice, to walk worthy of the calling that we've been given to bring due honor to Christ. We're simply too weak to do that by mere obedience. We pray you would help, that you would give us renewed obedience, refreshed and empowered by the work of your Spirit, by hearing of your love, that you would build into us a faith that responds to your commands and seeks obedience and walks in your ways with your powerful help, subduing our tendency and habits towards sin and making alive righteousness in our souls. And we confess our sin. We acknowledge your grace. We recognize that you have saved us not for our sake, but for your own namesake. You wanted a people who were called by your name, who in weakness would magnify your strength, who would confess our sins to the praise of your glorious grace, and we do so. We are ashamed of our sin. We are gripped by our sin. But we are trusting you and your forgiveness. We are trusting you and your spirit to free us. We are trusting you to grow us and mature us in the knowledge of your love and in response to it that you would produce in us devotion and holiness and that we will, because of the praise of your glorious grace, be like Jesus. Father, we pray that you would receive our praise and because we have become so delighted in your steadfast love, Help us to walk honoring your name, whether we walk in prosperity or affliction. To bear even our deepest sorrows with faith, gratitude, and obedience. That we might bear testimony to your goodness that exceeds all that we might lose in this life. Father, we pray that as we walk in prosperity, when things go well, you would keep us from forgetting you or thinking that we're fine on our own that you would grant to us a humility even in the midst of good circumstances. Father, we pray that you would produce in us a beautiful, winsome, happy repentance that gladly turns from the created things to the true glory of God, to the true Son who has loved us and given himself for us. Father, we pray that you would use worship services and kids clubs and all that happens in this church to bring about your desired purposes that we would delight in Jesus and walk with him and turn toward him. I pray, oh God, that you would use the week at RYM for our youth, that you would knit them together in affection for each other, that you would preach to them through the elective seminars and the large groups, that they would hear the gospel and it would be comforting to their souls. It would grasp their minds that they would want to believe in Jesus because of what you do through that conference. And that it would trickle into their homes, that when they come back speaking of what they've heard, it would minister to their siblings and to their parents. Father, we pray for our joy group. We long for fellowship together that encourages, that speaks of faith and life and hope and what you're doing in our lives that, that builds in us holiness. God, would you use our joy group to do that? We pray also for the women of our church, the council that's meeting next week, for the uh, Presbytery Fellowship, that you would use these things to bring us maturity and godliness and a zeal for your kingdom. Lord Jesus, we come to you now with our hands open, asking you to give us renewed joy and faith and life in your kingdom and in your gospel. We pray that you would empower our worship and then equip us for the life that you've called us to this week. We pray that we could bring honor to your name, for your name is good and worthy, and we love you, and we pray 
in your name. Amen. This morning during adult Sunday school class, we read that Jesus taught us it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, sometimes that's hard to believe because we like receiving so much. But to act in faith, to believe Jesus' words, to use the moment of worship of tithes and offerings to express our confidence that he provides for us and he is worthy of all that we have and all that we are. Would you take this moment to worship God with tithes and offerings? Please pray with me. God, you teach us over and over again to trust your word, to trust your promises, that you will do far more than we can even ask or imagine when we dedicate our lives, when we give our tithes and offerings to you. Whatever we do for you, you promise uh, to use it for your glory and multiply it. So Lord, would you do that, we pray. Would you take our tithes and offerings and bless the use of them for our church, and for our community. Lord, you are doing great things, and we pray that you would cause us to grow in faith and in trust in your word and your promises as we give our time and our money to you uh, through this body of believers. And we dedicate these to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would remain standing, we'll sing hymn number 52, O praise the Lord, O thank the Lord. Let's continue worshiping together.
Please be seated. You turn to turn to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. In the summer, we've been picking selected psalms that I have uh, called an anatomy of the soul, borrowing from theologian John Calvin. Um, but the the idea is that these psalms bring about all the stuff that goes inside us. So there are psalms for ecstasy and joy and thanksgiving. There are psalms for sadness and anger and uh, feeling alone. If I were going to pick some kind of internal feeling for this psalm, I might say this is a psalm for someone who's feeling either doubt or insecurity. It's actually probably best to just think of it as a historical psalm. What the psalmist is going to do is to kind of work his way through major events in the Old Testament and think about how we should think about those things for ourselves. Now, if you are someone who's familiar with the Old Testament history of Israel, when you read this psalm, it's going to bring up little uh, pieces of that narrative of the history of Israel in your mind. You're going to be, I remember that story, and you'll, you'll have a whole bunch of other details that come to mind as you read his kind of sparse bullet point notes. If you're not that familiar with Old Testament history, then you're going to read Psalm 106, and it's like the Cliff's Notes version. Does anybody remember Cliff's Notes? That Spark Notes might be, if you're, you know, more contemporary. It's the summary version that tells you from, from really Israel in Egypt at the beginning of the book of Exodus until they're returning from exile in the book of Ezra. Now, that's the history of God's people. And kind of spoiler here, it's your history. If you are a believer in Christ, you have been united to the people of God. The illustration that Paul uses in Romans is, is like a limb being grafted into a tree. So these are your people. Abraham is your father. This is your history. And you've surely heard the rather cynical quote, those who don't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Well, what is God showing us with our past? Psalm 106. I'm going to pray before we read this rather long psalm, but it's worth paying our attention to every verse. Would you pray with me? Father, as we read your word, give us patient, open minds and hearts. Teach us. Give us what our souls need to trust in Jesus to respond to your grace, to walk in faithful confession of our sins and repentance and obedience to you. Oh, Father, would you bless these moments spent in your word. Give us strong attention. Give us your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 106, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice and who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them 
was left. Then they believed His words. They sang His praise. But they soon forgot His works. Did not wait for His counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed them, swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf at Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them. They were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. It's completely true and utterly trustworthy. If you like watching movies or reading stories, one of the well-traveled uh, ways people tell stories is using kind of an amnesia. A major character forgets everything. Now they can use that for comedy, Finding Nemo, if you've seen the cartoon. They can use it for drama, the movie Memento, which won awards. They can use it for action, like in The Born Identity. The usual story is that someone has forgotten everything about who they are. They don't remember their name. They don't remember any of their history. This person has lost any recollection even of their relationships. They're sort of blank slates in the midst of an adult life. Now, uh, as I understand it, and I'm certainly no expert, that's not normally the way amnesia really works, it, we don't just forget everything. And the, the truth is, probably, most of us, we remember our own personal stories. 
There might be things in our lives that we wish we could forget, and yet they stick with us. But what we do forget is our larger history. We forget the, the big history that has brought us to where we are today, how much it has shaped us. We tend to think the only thing that's really me is I got here as a clean slate, and I get to shape myself however I can do it. And, and I'm individual. I'm doing it myself. What I do, what I think, what I say is what matters about me. And what's most important is probably how I handle the next moment. This psalm says something different. It says that there is a a huge historical context in which you find yourself, and it matters intensely. It matters because it's the context in which you find your life, and without knowing it, you don't realize who you are and how you got here, and more significantly, you'll never know where to go next. This psalmist wants you to get it, and he's not giving you code. He's being quite blunt. Let me, let me just point it out. First verse. This is his main point. This is the thing that if you're not going to listen to the whole sermon, at least get this one. This is what he wants you to get. Verse 1, Psalm 106. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That is the main thought. It is what he wants you to understand. In verse 2, he says, here's how you experience this good and steadfast love of God. You experience it by his inexpressible, mighty wonderful works. Verse 2, who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? His works are so magnificent we can't scale their heights or describe them adequately. They show his steadfast love and his goodness. And verse 3, so here's how you should respond. Blessed are those who observe justice and do righteousness all the time. This is the sensible response to God's goodness. Thirteen times in the Old Testament, you get this refrain from verse 1. The Lord is good. Give thanks. His steadfast love endures forever. It's repeated not just in the Psalms, but in other books of the Bible. It is the way they think about God, and it shapes what you're going to see from God, and it shapes how you ought to respond to Him. And how do we get to know this steadfast love of our good God? Well, you find it in his people. Steadfast love is for God's people. I want you to look at verse 4. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. The psalmist says, I want to be included in your people. God, you have favor for your collected people, the congregation, the nation, the people by your name. They're the ones who get your favor and I want you to include me in their number. Now, what he's saying here is going to be hard for us to really grasp. It's, it's, it's fairly un-American. And it's not even really consistent with the way people in you know, the West tend to think. We tend to think about how we respond. I'm part of some groups. I go to the group because maybe they can give something to me that helps me in my life. Or I may go to a group because I have something I can give them to benefit them. But I still think of it as I'm, a, I'm the primary thing, and the group is just kind of a, a vehicle in which I'm a part. But that isn't the way the Scriptures think. It isn't even the way most of the world thinks. They tend to think in terms of tribes and clans and groups. And this psalmist is saying that's the way God treats us. Let me try to make it very explicit. The psalmist wants you to know there is no reasonable expectation of God's blessing apart from membership in God's people. Now, I'm I'm talking to people who are at church. So I feel like I'm, you know, telling the people who are like, yeah, that's kind of... I can see that. I'm good with that. I want to kind of really hit at what this means. 
Um, suppose you had a medical emergency and you've got a, a, a close friend who is a medical professional. So you call your close friend and say, I'm having this emergency. Your close friend might be the kind of person who goes, all right, I'm on my way over. But more than likely, if they're a medical professional, what they're going to tell you is, yeah, you need to go to the ER. Why is that? Because the ER is the place where we have the tools and the talents to deal with medical emergencies. It's the place where we get medical care for emergencies. God is saying, if you want the blessings of God, the place where you find it is in the congregation of God. It is the place you would go. Now, once again, I think there would be a, a confusion here. You might think of the place as the building. We use the word church. It is in the church that you will find the grace of God and you have no reason to expect it in other places. But I don't want you to think of the church primarily as the building. I want you to think of it as these people who are joined together in the name of God and for the purposes of God. Membership is, well, it can be formalized. We ask people to become communing members of the church if they're going to worship here and attend here with us. That way, the officers of the church know who they're taking care of. The people know what their expectations are. We have very specific ways we describe that. But the primary way I want you to think about membership in the community of God's people in the church is that you're worshiping together, sharing your lives together, and you're so involved with other people who are following God that there are people who can impose on you, who can, who can get you to do something you don't really want to do, who are willing to, that you're willing to pay a cost because of your relationship to them. Now, notice what I'm not saying. It doesn't mean you're attending certain meetings or you're doing things that are checking off boxes it's about these connections. And if you are connected to God's people in such a way that there are folks who can impose on you and make demands of you and who require you to, you know, forgive them and who, need, who you need them to forgive you, if you're in relationships like that, you are in the place where you can expect God's grace. That's where he gives it. Look what he says again. I mean, he just says it so explicitly. Help me when you save them. I know you're going to save your people, so bring that same help to me because I'm with them. He's under the umbrella of God's people. God deals with his church, and the people in it gain those blessings because they're part of God's people. It's the only way you should expect saving grace. And you can even see it in this man's heart. Verse 5, that I may look on the prosperity of your chosen ones. His heart is for the welfare, not chiefly of himself, but of the people that are gathered. That I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, not the individual prosperity of a few or one or myself, but of the people. That I may glory with your inheritance. Glory is a word that's kind of like beauty. What he's saying is, I won't find beauty in other places. I'm going to find it in your people who are experiencing your blessing, and I'm going to share it with them. That's where real beauty is found. The heart of the psalmist is not his personal well-being but the rescued people who are treasured by God, who are experiencing his steadfast love together. There is no anticipation in the scriptures and certainly with this psalmist of a lone Christian, someone who can sneak into worship and sneak out. Only the gathered people of God who share God's blessings. Now, the reason this is so foreign to us is because you're going to find plenty of people today who will talk about being 
religious, spiritual, faithful, even Christian, but don't really like the gathered church, the institution, who find it difficult. And you know why they find it difficult? It's because it is difficult. God's people are trouble. I'm part of them. I know I contribute. I know I'm bringing my own trouble here. But look what he says. Verse 6. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. God's, the steadfast love that's for God's people is a steadfast love for God's flawed people. It's reported that Gandhi said, if it weren't for Christians, I'd be a Christian. I don't know if he really said that. What I know he did say was, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That's a, that's a, a hard thing to say, but it's 100% true. Jesus could never say, verse 6, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. He isn't like us. He is holy and righteous. But we, <laughs> we're trouble. Now, if you're a part of the church and you haven't experienced that, just be patient. We sin. And the first vow of membership in this church is to say, I'm a sinner and I deserve God's displeasure and I can't fix it. That's, that's the entrance requirement. I got to check that box. It is a collection of flawed people who know the steadfast love of God. We are hopelessly impacted by the guilt, power, and corruption of our sin. And verses 7 through 46, which I won't read over again, repeat it and tell us. The pattern goes something like this. They rebelled, God saved. That's it. They rebelled, God saved. There was a, a writer who said that the thing that you bring to salvation is the guilt that makes it necessary. Verse 13. You're going to start to see this echo. Verse 13. But soon they forgot his works. Verse 21. They forgot God their Savior. Over and over again, they developed amnesia. They forgot their history. They forgot God's great works that defined them as a people. They forgot his steadfast love was what was guiding their history. And because of that, they rebelled. They rebelled in the desert, so they were disciplined. They rebelled with idol worship and Yet God forgave them when Moses prayed for them many times. Verse 43. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes. I want you to catch this. Here is what the psalmist is saying. Look how good God was to us. And look how we responded. God was good. He forgave. He delivered. He rescued. He provided we rebelled, we turned away, we forgot. When we forget these great works of God, the most natural thing is for our heart to take over, which is sinful. And so we taste the Lord's goodness, then we forget, and we try to live for ourselves. We seek our own glory, not the glory of God's inheritance, not the glory of God's people and his steadfast love and his blessings. We seek a new glory that we can achieve on our own. We're just looking to be independent because we have forgotten the goodness of God. We have forgotten his steadfast love. We have forgotten that it's better than life itself. And so this psalmist tells us that there is a steadfast love of God for God's people and we as individuals experience it by our membership in God's blessed people. 
But those people are trouble. It's a steadfast love for God's flawed people. It's a steadfast love for God's flawed but remembered people. Look at verse 45. Now, remember it kept saying over and over, we forget, we forget. Look at verse 45. For their sake, he remembered. We forget, he remembers. He comes after his rebellious people. He chastises them. He causes them to see their need. He says, I made a promise and I intend to keep it. And my people will not get away from me. Listen, I know that at some point you're going to listen to this sermon and, and, and there's going to be this kind of guilty. You know what? I have tasted God's goodness and I should be better than I am. If that's what you hear, you're missing the point of Psalm 106. I mean, it's true, right? God is so good to us and we ought to be better. But that's not the point. The point is, God is so good to us. So, whatever you found yourself in in the past, He's been good to you right now. So respond right now. This God who's remembered you. The Old Testament is a long history of rebellion in the face of God's grace, but it records that steadfast love triumphs over rebellion. So if you look around today and you go, I see a lot of trouble in the church. I see a lot of of public news where there's chaos and immorality or people who are abandoning the faith within these historic churches. I want you to know that God is still at work. He is still pursuing his children. And his steadfast love endures rebellion, endures weakness, and it endures forever. And so the psalmist tells you how to think about this. Verse 47, save us, O Lord our God. Notice what he says here is is not, we're going to get our act together. Save us. You're good to us. Save us. Gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. There it is again, that glory that he's been seeking, not just in the prosperity of the church, but in the name of God, that that's where beauty is found to him. That he is moving away from those independent ways of life in which he's lived apart from God and now he's coming underneath the people of God who are saying your name is great because you've seen your favor, your steadfast love that endures all my weakness and all my rebellion and will never be exhausted. He says that we give thanks to his holy name. Blessed be the Lord God in verse 48, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say it. Amen. Let that be true. Let that be my prayer. Let me echo the words of this psalmist. Your people, O God, that's where your blessing is found. Let me be found among them. And we have sinned. We're trouble. I'll say it this way. I'm trouble. I'm flawed. So save us, O God. Save us for your good purposes. And may your name be great. And the last phrase you see there is praise the Lord. In Hebrew, it's hallelujah. That's his last word. Let it be ours. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the grace that you show us, a grace that pursues and endures, a steadfast love that can overwhelm and triumph over our rebellion. God, let us taste fresh the beauty of your grace and steadfast love and that win us to following you. Let all of our past be consumed in your mercy.
And may our next step be one that says, Jesus is great. Hallelujah. For we pray in his name. Amen. I'm going to ask you if you would take your hymnals and turn to 460 and let us celebrate this amazing grace that is coursing through all of human history. Hymn 460, Amazing Grace. Let's stand and sing. In the book of Numbers, one of those scenes when they're in the wilderness in which they had been rebelling against God, God commanded Aaron and the priests to pronounce a blessing on those people because God's grace would triumph over even their rebellion. And then it says, in doing so, you will put my name on them. The name of the living God is on you who believe and you have his blessing. This is what he is doing for you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Mm.